Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the brand new New Books Network seminar. Welcome to all of you listeners, and thanks for joining us on this inaugural podcast. Now, I just had the pleasure of talking with Eric Hayo about his brand new book, The Elements of Academic Style, Writing for the Humanities. This came out in 2014 with Columbia University Press, and this is an extraordinarily important book. Um, it's important, I think, for any of us who are writers ourselves, um, who do any kind of professional academic or humanistic writing, and or those of us who teach undergraduate and graduate level writing um, in any of the institutional settings that we work in. And that's a lot, a lot of people um, that fall under those umbrellas. So what this book does is it's organized into a section or into a series of four sections that treat the practice of writing as a lived experience, as a kind of craft, and attend to it's not just very practical and um, sort of low-level tactical um, elements, but also the kinds of psychological and social components that make for effective academic writing. Each one of the sections treats a different area or a different level of writing as a practice from sort of thinking about things like, you know, strategies for developing writing habits, ways to think about the institutional structures of academic writing, to thinking about the large-scale structures that govern the different elements and, and aspects of a piece of writing from paragraphs be to beyond, to very specific low-level tactics like, you know, attending to the rhythm of a sentence, attending to um, what Hayo calls a kind of ventilation of your writing, thinking about citation practices, footnotes, endnotes. And then finally, to the elements of becoming um, that include not just your own work, your written work becoming itself, but also the um, transformation into um, a, a writer that many of us are in the process of experiencing or hopefully will experience at some point in the near future. So it's an amazing book. It's a book that if I could, I would buy a copy of and give to all of my colleagues um, and all of my students. And it's one that's already, um, since I have read it and been thinking about it for the purpose of this conversation, has transformed how I think about my own teaching of writing. It, this is absolutely going to be coming into my classrooms as of this week, I think, um, and for many, many years to come. And it's also transformed how I think about my own writing. So I hope you enjoy. Um, it's been absolutely a pleasure to work through. Again, I think this is a really, really important book. So I hope you have a chance to take a look at it, to um, get a copy for yourself. And thank you for being here with us for this first podcast of the New Book Network seminar. And I hope you enjoy as much as I did. I'm here today to talk with Eric Hayo about his new book, The Elements of Academic Style, Writing for the Humanities. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Eric, and thanks for being our inaugural um, interview with this brand new seminar. Thanks for making time to talk with me today, and in particular, for making time to talk about a book that I'm really, really excited about. So welcome, thank you, and congratulations on a fantastic book. Thanks so much. I'm excited to talk about it. And uh, also, I guess, you know, who knows? I mean, it, the, the seminar can only get better from here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm really grateful. And I'm also really, um, like I said, really excited about the book. And one of the reasons why um, we are talking about this particular book as a way of inaugurating this new seminar is that rather than at least in my reading of it, rather than being a book that's particular to a very limited academic field, this is a book with potentially very wide-ranging relevance and wide-ranging consequences across different fields of humanistic writing. So this is a writing guide um, that you've written, and a writing style guide in particular, geared specifically toward 
academic writers in the humanities. An academic, we can understand in its broadest possible um, connotations there. Now, you talk a little bit about what brought about the decision to create a book like this, um, to create this kind of object with this particular shape in um, the book itself. But for listeners now, as a way of getting us started and bringing us in, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this project? How did you decide that we needed a book like this and that you were the person to write it? Well, yeah, I think the, the thing I want to say first is I really love academic writing and, and I, I love it. Um, I don't love all of it, obviously. And, and uh, you know, half of it is below average um, by definition. But, you know, I, I partly became interested in becoming an academic and becoming a scholar because I read things that moved and inspired me. And one of the things that I found historically very frustrating about being in academia is that, that most of the writing advice that I see out there for writers of scholarly prose tends to be written from the perspective that insists that most of it is bad and that most of it is, is wrongheaded. And that the reason that most of it is bad and wrongheaded is because academics are um, narcissistic or stupid or shallow or uh, are masking their lack of self-confidence or their tiny penises with sort of longer words and, and sort of, you know, a kind of phallic uh, uh, sort of self-protection uh, and, and, and obfuscation that's designed to sort of conceal the fact that uh, they were the people, as one uh, historian once put it, uh, who were sitting uh, against the wall during the dances in high school. Um, and so, you know, this struck me, first of all, as, as a kind of advice and, and a kind of attitude towards academic writing that, that didn't feel like it, it, it respected or valued much of what I respect and value in academic writing and, and that treated, I guess, my liking of those things as though it were sort of somehow pathological. Um, now, of course, Carla, as everyone knows, I have an incredibly tiny penis, but <laughs> Uh, I'm not really, well, whatever. I don't know. I don't know how to finish that joke. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I, I, I guess I wanted to insist at some point that I, I, I don't feel like the fact that I love things that are complicated, that are, that are abstruse, um, but also that are often very beautiful and moving, um, that are able to sort of bring together ideas in, 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 in exciting ways. If you give them the opportunity to, uh, makes me somehow, it, it was simply the product of a kind of self delusion in which I, what I failed to recognize is that if I could just get over the fact that I was humiliated in high school, I would be okay now. And then I could learn to love writing in a kind of plain style. And, and so that, you know, I mean, in some sense, that emotional frustration is at the heart of the book, um, which, which is that I felt like we needed a book that would be written for people who do academic writing, beginning from a place that loved much of what happens in academic writing. Of course, I don't love everything, but I love many things. And, and also beginning from a place of deep compassion for the difficulty of academic writing and, and for the sort of the pain and the hurt and the fear that are wrapped up in the process of academic writing, um, and, and including my own. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually really crucial because so much of us, or so many of us at um, so many stages of the development um, of ourselves as and into academic writers or writers at all, sort of contend with fear, contend with, you know, the, the, the realities that a lot of the time we're writing out of fear. And does it have to be that way? Why should it be that way? And the sort of recent, um, I think, criticisms of academic writing that you may be alluding to um, that I certainly have seen circulating around the groups I'm part of in Facebook and on the Chronicle of Higher Education, etc., they tend to just kind of magnify that fear, I think, by um, defining what academic writing is and what it must be in a way, in a very, very limited way that also almost makes us more afraid of this craft that we've taken on um, than, you know, than is uh, productive. And so this is one of the things I really like about the book is that you sort of get in there, you look at, in the, you look at it in the face and you open it up and explode this idea that we have to be thinking about academic writing as looking really, you know, one particular stultifying way and that we have to write out of fear and, and out of, you know, aloneness with that fear. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll say this. I, I think I don't really know what it's like to write without some fear. And I, I, you know, part of what I do in the book is I try to suggest that, that the very natural fear that one has when writing scholarship in particular 
is the product of the ambition that one has for the work and of a fear that one isn't good enough to do what one is ambitiously trying to do. And, and so, you know, when you put it that way, it doesn't seem unreasonable to be afraid. I mean, that is, I'm, you know, every time I write a piece of scholarship, I am trying to write something that is amazing and interesting and will inspire people and make my friends think that I, you know, they're really happy to be friends with me because I'm such a good writer. And, and that's really hard. And, and it's, it's not, it doesn't get easy uh, ever because I think you're always trying to, to do something that's better than the things you've done before. Um, and, and so, you know, the, a lot of writing advice seems to be about mastering or getting over fear through the production of rules. I'm not feeling is it just, it, you know, this fear is, is a rational fear and it's okay. And it's okay to understand it as a kind of fear that's the product of desire. And, and, you know, one doesn't have fear, for instance, as I point out in the book, when, when one writes a grocery list, right? Because I'm not afraid that I, that I can't accomplish that task. So, when you think of fear that way, then you realize that, that fear becomes, at least for me, less of an enemy and more of a companion uh, to the process of writing. And, and it also becomes an entryway into a community of others who are also afraid. And, and so it's, it's a question of then writing maybe a little bit afraid, but, but in some sense, the fear bites less when one, when, when one is not alone in one's fear and when one also manages to sort of think of one's fear as, as a fundamental part of what one has begun aspiring to do. Uh, and at that point, fear is a choice and, and fear is fear is a, a way of being in relation to the writing that doesn't have to cripple the writing, but can actually be simply part there as, 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 a, as, as part of what one lives when one writes this kind of work. That's right. And I think that that's really uh, crucial um, because the book is doing a kind of work, at least from my perspective as one reader of it, right, which is all I can really um, speak for and speak to. But the book is doing a work. Uh, a kind of work to acknowledge that fear, make it part of the process, but also to give us a way of being afraid together rather yes. than being afraid alone. And that's a fundamentally different kind of experience. Right. So creating a kind of companionship really, for me, um, feels like it's at the heart of many elements of the book. And we'll talk about some of the explicit ways that that's the case, I hope, by the end of our conversation. But implicitly, um, it's the case in part in the way that you're framing, both at the beginning and also throughout the book, the way that you're asking us to use and encounter the book. I think on page 80 you say, this is a book that wants you to surpass and destroy it um, in, in the best possible way, right? Um, it, it, to kind of make it your own um, and to integrate um, these uh, ideas into your lived practice and then transcend it. And so in, in many ways, you're presenting this book to us as a work in progress, as an instrument um, to be used and integrated. And I really love that about it. So companionship um, and the writing process is, again, um, very much at the heart of many elements of the book. And another element um, of the book in which this is the case is um, clear from the very beginning. So the book is organized into four major sections. And the first section looks at writing as a practice. And you lay out um, what's covered under this uh, one section of the book. This covers, among other things, how to think of writing, as you put it, as a dynamic practice that includes behavioral emotional and institutional parameters, how to develop effective writing habits, how to match your writing to the different contexts that you're working within, and how to orient your work to the experience of the reader. And so we'll talk about some of these um, in the course of our short time together. <coughs> now, one of the really fascinating points that comes up in this section um, that that's of you know really um, immediate importance to me as somebody who works in a graduate program, who trains graduate students, um, and who talks about writing in graduate programs all the time without the kind of tools to really understand how to effectively train students for the realities of the writing world that are going to you know be part of their lives uh, after graduation. Is you talk about the current state of writing instruction in graduate programs. Okay, this is crucial. I want to make sure that we spend time talking about this because this is one of the potentially um, most, I think, transformative um, elements of the book in terms of how we can take this book and use it to really think about transforming how we teach. And, and I really mean that. I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, this could be really transformative for how we teach in graduate programs. So let's start there. Um, and I'm just going to keep this very open. Can you talk a little bit about how you, your perception of the current state of a writing or teaching writing in graduate programs in the humanities and how you are attempting to 
deal with that, change that, transform that in a way that makes sense to you, given what you're talking about in the book? Mm-hmm. Well, so I'll say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, that to me, the problem is fundamentally institutional rather than um, located in the practice of an individual teacher, which is not to say that, pra- that individual teachers can't actually help ameliorate the situation. And I'll, I'll describe what I think the situation is in a moment. But also that as I describe the situation, what I what I want listeners to hear is that this situation is the product of decisions that are made essentially at the departmental level. And that changing the situation actually involves rethinking in a kind of structural and institutional way, the basic way that graduate school works in the humanities. So let me back up. If you look at the way that we train students to write in the first two to two and a half years of their coursework period, which is, of course, particular to the U.S. and Canadian academic model, right? What we do is we ask them over and over to, at the end of a semester in which they've spent some time reading books assigned by another person, write a 20 to 25 page paper that has something to do with those books and maybe some books of their own, not always, but sometimes. If you came from Mars and you said, what are you preparing these students to do? You'd say, oh, they must be getting ready for a job in which they spend all their time writing 75 pages over three to four weeks on three topics chosen by other people. Right. But that would actually be wrong. I mean, it would be fundamentally wrong about what we do. Right. If we think about how the faculty actually write, no faculty member writes in the way that we train our students to write for those first two and a half years. So is it any small wonder then that when the students who have been trained in this, let me pause. This is a training, not just in a genre of writing the seminar paper, which has a very particular sort of set of structures and and patterns, but it's actually a training in a behavioral, physically embodied mode of writing practice, right? That is, that is its training in a kind of muscle memory and a, and a physio, physiological and psychological memory and habit and set of habit patterns that, are built around the idea of writing three papers in three weeks, right? So they, that, that shapes the way that one reads when one is writing one of seminar papers. There's a lot of skimming going on. There's a lot of trying to put things together quickly. Um, there's, there's obviously much less revision. There's a lot of late nights. Uh, there is a kind of a manic quality to the entire thing, right? That, and, and all of this is essentially training and, and muscle memory, Right. That then. okay. so now is it any surprise that when they then get to the moment where they're supposed to write the first dissertation chapter, it takes so many of them a year. They've never written anything for the most part that's 60 pages long. They've certainly never written anything that's 50 or 60 pages long with any guidance from their faculty. They've never worked on a project for nine to 12 months at a time. They've never been asked to do the kind of archival research that a historian would normally do before writing the chapter. Right. They've never. Uh, had to think about what it means to write something of that length and hold that sort of st- stuff together in terms of a sort of genre or structure. And they've never actually had to write at the level of density, including the level of footnote density and, and, and of citational density that actual publishable work is written at because in seminar papers, they don't actually cite or footnote in the same ways, right? So, they get there and it takes them a year and we think, oh, why does it take them a year? Now, some people, it doesn't take a year, right? I don't know why those people are lucky. Maybe they had a great education, but it takes many, many people a year and many people more than a year to write that first chapter. And, you know, the faculty in this kind of crazy way then get frustrated and think, they, you know, what's wrong? Why aren't they writing? It's because we haven't taught them how to do the thing we're asking them to do. And, you know, it seems to me that if you have a basic ethics of pedagogy, it should be Try to teach people to do the thing you're asking them to do. We don't teach them how to do the thing we're asking them to do. And that's the problem, right? And it's not to say that seminar papers don't teach people anything, right? But they teach people a very particular set of things, right? Some of which are useful. Some of which, as I'm pointing out, are not useful. That is, they train people to toward an embodied practice that is actually the wrong practice. No successful academic that I know writes in the way that we train students to write seminar papers. And yet we teach them to do that and we put them in that situation for, you know, four, five, six consecutive semesters and tell them that if they're succeeding at that, that's a sign that they're going to be great at everything else. Mm-hmm. When, you know, it's not in the same way that playing, you know, playing soccer is not a sign you're going to be good at basketball. Yes, you know, you might get fitter playing soccer and you might learn some things about space and movement and teamwork and so on. 
right, that might then help you on the basketball court, but there's no reason to assume the skills directly transfer. And so what's, what's weird to me is the absolute lack of consciousness. Among, and again, this may be much more ironic for people in literature departments than for people in history, history departments, but among the very people who are teaching undergraduates how to write, mm-hmm. right, and among the people who are supposed to be among the most thoughtful scholars and thinkers about the act of writing and how writing works. So that's the part that's deeply crazy making to me and the part that seems to require a radical rethinking of what it is we do in graduate school. Now, let me, I'll just go on. I mean, I'll say that one of the, one of the ways that someone could criticize me, and and in fact, people have been, been critical of me for saying these kinds of things is you're talking about training professors, but we don't train professors. We train intellectuals. Right. So there's there's a kind of opposition that's set up between what it means to train someone to be a thinker and what it means to train someone in a kind of highly professionalized way that's oriented towards the demands of a specific profession, which, you know, the critique goes is the product of neoliberal forces attacking the university and creating publication demands, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, I don't know what I mean, there are lots of things one can say about that critique. Um. One of the things to say is I don't think that the opposition between the intellectual and the professional writer or the scholarly writer is as clear as people think it is. Um, It's pretty clear that the major way that we consume intellectualism is through the written word. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it doesn't strike me as a coincidence that many of our great intellectuals are also powerful writers. Um, you know, it's also possible, I suppose, to be an intellectual and be a terrible writer. Although, again, at the limit, if you were so terrible that you couldn't write, then no one would ever really know you were an intellectual. So, you know, I don't know. But um, it, it does, you know, it does seem to me that 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 critique actually contains within itself a kind of theory of, the, of a, uh, the, uh, an idea that there's a fundamental opposition between thinking and writing that is, I'll just put it this way, wrong. I mean, that is, I think it's patently wrong, provably wrong. Uh, and all you have to do to understand that is to read like the last sort of hundred years of what loosely goes under the name of theory, right? Which suggests over and over to us that in fact, the way that things are written is part of the measure of how they're thought and part of the measure of what makes them thinkable. And so part of what I would say is I'm training intellectuals who communicate uh, and I'm training people how to communicate as intellectuals. And part of that communication involves communicating within the norms of a profession. If someone wants to be a genius who writes in a cave and whose work is discovered later, that's fine. Um, and then maybe they can do what they want. But I think for, for our graduate students who are ostensibly being trained, you know, in relation to a profession, but even in relation to sort of an idea of an intellectual, that, that idea is completely implicated in the forms of production and consumption of knowledge that we engage in all the time. And so, so the critique seems to me a, a bit nonsensy, but also really defensive. Um, you know, if you want to criticize the publication treadmill, I think there are things to criticize about the publication treadmill, but that doesn't, for me, necessarily negate the idea that we should be teaching people how to write or how to engage in a kind of professional practice or an intellectual practice depending on how you feel about this, that resembles the intellectual and professional practices of the people who are trying to teach them. Right. right? So again, like if you think being intellectual requires doing what you do as a professor, which is to spend two or three or four years working on a project and writing slowly and spending a lot of time in the summer and writing every day and doing archival research and so on and so forth, then why do you train your graduate students over the course of their first two years over and over in a practice that resembles that practice? Not at all. And what is the relation between then that practice? Do you have a theory, pedagogically speaking, of the relation between seminar papers? Because someone would say, actually, the best way to learn how to be an intellectual later on is to do this thing. And I know it doesn't look like it, right? That would be a kind of karate kid version of the instruction. So Daniel is like waxing on and waxing off. off Right. And he thinks he's not learning anything, right? Yeah, he thinks he's not learning anything, but it turns out later that he is actually learning something. (laughs) If that's what you're doing, great. I'd like to see the, I'd like to see the rationale. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm all for the idea that what we could do is we could break down the basic skills of book writing and article writing into a set of sub practices. Right. It's not the only way to learn how to write a book is to write a book, though. Obviously, that's a good way to learn how to write. Right. But there may be other things that go into learning how to write a book that you can learn in, in smaller scale structures over the course of a couple of weeks. You could practice paragraphing. You could practice footnoting. You could practice. You could read my book about, you know, learn about citational practice and so on and so forth. There are all kinds of things you could learn that don't have to involve just writing the whole book. 
And and there again, you are back at this kind of wax on wax off model. But that seems to me to be a a powerful pedagogical model. The reality is if the seminar paper is part of a generalized process in which you say what you're doing in the seminar paper is you're learning to handle a 25 page idea. There's something really valuable about the challenge of holding that idea and experiencing what it's like to have that 25 page structure in your hands working back and forth either on paper and file and and to learn and encounter the particular problems that come with that with thoughts of that length mm-hmm. that would be great mm-hmm. it would be also great if you then you told students that's what the seminar paper was for okay. and you put that seminar paper in the context of a series of other modes of instruction that let them encounter the other things that are part of the way that we learn right and in fact, you're actually giving, I mean, you, you briefly mentioned um, kind of offhand citational practice, right, uh, just a, a couple of minutes ago. And you actually are giving very concrete examples in the book of not just what one might do to start getting toward a mode of teaching academic writing in a graduate context that did resemble more of the kind of model of, um, you know, integrating particular uh, exercises that were meant to help train them to master particular practices that are actually practices that we actually use when we're doing actual academic writing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you know, you talk about some of them. Um, so one of them that you talk about that I was actually really interested in is precisely this exercise um, that you describe that you use with your students or that you say you use with your students that's about citational practice where you have them just kind of make up quotations, Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so can you, can you talk about that and maybe sure, I mean, some other things that you do in your own classroom um, that are related to this that you found particularly useful um, that you might suggest that others might consider adopting as well? OK, well, so one of the things that you'll notice if you look, if you read a bunch of seminar papers and then you look at published work, published articles, right, is that published articles are much more densely citational. Um, they, they have more footnotes, but they also cite secondary scholarship more uh, than seminar papers do. And we all understand why that happens. But one of the things that means is that when students write seminar papers, they are actually, again, practicing. Think about this as a kind of embodiment or or kind of muscle memory. They're practicing writing paragraphs that are actually wrong in terms of the kinds of writing you need to do in an article. And the problem, of course, with the seminar paper is students don't have the time to do the research they would need to put all the footnotes in and to put all the citations in. And so what that means is when they get to the dissertation, they don't actually necessarily, they haven't been taught, they, you know, they might figure it out on their own, but they haven't been taught how, in some sense, academic writing is built and structured and how to use the work of others to support, extend, and enliven your argument. So what I have my students do is we sit down and we, we first of all, I tell them what I've just told you, and we look at the differences. So we look at some seminar papers, we look at some articles. We actually make a list. What are the kinds of footnotes people have? Let's go through and let's typologize them. Okay. And then we look at the quotes and we say, what kind of quotes do people, what do people use secondary criticism for? How do they use it? What's the difference between using someone and giving and quoting a full sentence or just referring to them in a footnote or maybe only quoting them as part of your own sentence? So you have a sentence where you have your own words and then you quote a few of their words and then you end the quote and you continue going with your own language, right? How are these, what are these, what are the different kinds of ways of, of, of doing this stuff? And then once we've kind of made a rough typology and say four types of footnotes, five types of, five types of quotations, um, then I just say, okay, well, now in your next paper, you have to do one of each of these. And also what I want to see is I want to see that you have the rough level of density for doing these that the article has rather than the seminar paper. Now, they can't do the research to do this. And so what I say is you should just make up the quotes, mm-hmm. right? You should make up the quotes. You should make up the secondary sources. So if you get to a moment where you think, okay, if I were in an article, this would be a moment when I would have one of those, uh, you know, cover your ass style footnotes, where I'm kind of showing that I've read a bunch of secondary criticism, but I don't really want to deal with it, but I want to make sure that the reader doesn't sort of doubt my authority. Mm-hmm. Then you put that footnote there, and then you give me that footnote in the correct format with made-up names of books and made-up authors so that you understand, right, what you're practicing is what I would think of as the rhetoric of academic style, that is the sort of modes of persuasion and the modes of production that go into actually producing publishable work. Similarly, right, you know, one of the one of the things students almost never do, and it's really, really useful, is is what I call the partial quote, right, which, which I described a minute ago, where you quote someone in the middle of your own sentence. And it's a really, really powerful way of engaging with someone else's argument within the frame of your own argument and of 
using that person to lend you a certain kind of referential authority without getting sort of in too much of a kind of genuflected position to their work. And so we talk about that. We talk about how that works and we look at examples. And then, you know, I want the student to get to a moment in the article where they would think this is, would be a good moment for me to do this and to figure out what is, what is the, what is the grammar pattern that they're going to need? How are they going to have to write a sentence that develops that structure and leaves itself open to that structure? And then what is the quote that they need? Right. And so then they can make up the quote. And obviously in the future, you know, when, when they do real scholarship, they're not allowed to make up the quotes, but here at least the point is this is practicing the very thing that they need to learn how to do. And it's teaching them actually how to write the correct format. So that's, you know, that's a small thing. Let me give you an example of something at the institutional level that we've just institutionalized here at Penn State mm-hmm. that I think responds to some of these issues, not at the kind of micro level within a single classroom, but at a, at a larger level. We have just set up what we're calling a kind of summer writing fellowship. What is this? It is a program in which students in the fall who are writing a seminar paper apply for this program. And if they get in, they spend the spring semester doing an independent study with one of our faculty. The goal of the independent study is to do the background reading and the kind of large scale thinking that will govern the transition between the seminar paper that they've written in the fall semester and an article that they're going to produce over the summer. So they're doing this independent study. They're meeting with a faculty member once a week. They're working on the reading. They're talking about the reading with, with the faculty member. The faculty member has read the paper, obviously. They are, are also, obviously, part of the subtext talking about the paper. At the same time, these five students are meeting with a writing coach who is going to teach them the kind of things I'm talking about with you. So we'll look at articles. We'll talk about what's different in an article seminar paper. We'll talk about sort of focusing articles in specific journals and so on. So on. Then we get to the summer. And we pay them. We give them $4,000 so they don't have to teach. And we give them a $1,000 research budget so that they can travel to an archive or something like that. And they spend them the summer writing. Um, we have uh, – this, um, this is a kind of kooky idea, but I, you'll like it. I think other people think it's silly. But uh, it's, I'm making something called the Gold Star Writing Club where uh, we have a big chart. It's called the Gold Star Chart. And everyone who comes in – this is actually for all the graduate students. Everyone who comes in for at least three hours uh, in, into the office and writes – it's a gold star. And then at the end of the summer, we'll have pizza once a week and so on. And then at the end of the summer, uh, everyone, uh, there'll be a lottery and you'll get, you'll get a number of tickets. That's the same as the number of gold stars you have. Mm-hmm. And we'll raffle away an iPad. And, uh, I think one of our, one of our gifts is I'll come clean your house. Um, <laughs> One of my students said that they would feel like they had to clean their house first before I got there uh, in order to make sure it was clean enough for me to clean. But um, in any case, what we're going to do with our writing fellowship students then is that they're also going to meet and workshop their own work over the course of the summer. Right. So they spend the whole summer working on this transition from the seminar paper to the article. They've done all the reading at this point. Theoretically, they've visited an archive if they need to visit the archive. And this process continues then with with them engaged with each other. And they have this writing coach. And they're also partially engaged with the person they did the independent study with. And then by October 15th of the following fall, right, the fall after the summer, they are then required to submit this paper to a journal on their feet. So this is ideally happening in the second or third year, the transition between the second and the third year. And the idea was, you know, was, was to basically integrate into our and, – and, and ultimately, we have enough funding to do this. We're a very small program. We have enough funding to do this for all of our second-year students. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's now become something that's completely integrated into the process of getting a PhD in comparative literature at Penn State, right, where you – where actually part of being in the program in your second year is that you actually go through this process so that by the time you start writing the dissertation, you've had the experience of – thinking about the difference between the kind of writing you've been doing in your seminar papers and academic style, scholarly style. Mm-hmm. You've had the experience of working on something for about, about a year because you have to apply, you know, in October 15th of the fall of your second year. And then you you submit in October 15th of the, of the fall of your third year, right? So you've had, again, think, thinking about that embodied sort of muscle memory, psychological memory process, what it means to think about something for a year, what it means to watch something grow over the course of a year. And change and how that, you know, and, and, and again, we, we'll do this thing at the end where we look back at the seminar paper and then we look at the article and we all have this kind of, I hope, oh my God, moment <laughs> of realizing how far all of these pieces of work have come. And finally, because this piece of work in most cases is going to be part of the dissertation, it means that when they start writing their dissertations, usually in the spring of their third year or the summer after their third year, they actually start the first chapter of their dissertation with 25 to 30 pages mm-hmm. of publishable material mm-hmm. that they that then 
it forms a kind of foundation of that chapter. And that ideally means that instead of taking a year on their first chapter, they're going to be able to do their first chapter in six months, which then gives them more time to do the second chapter and the third chapter and so on. Right. So, so, so the whole point of this institutional structure is that it has changes up and down the graduate curriculum in terms of affecting not only what's happening in their classes, because as they choose which class to take or as they choose which seminar paper to use. And then, of course, in their classes with the individual faculty member doing independent study, but also then to their entire writing practice, to their comps exam potentially, and of course to their dissertation. And what's more, because all of the first year students know that they're going to have to do this in their second year, when they choose their seminars in the fall, they are already choosing their seminars with an eye towards thinking about which of these seminars will produce the paper mm-hmm. that is going to lead into this. So from their very first year, our students are aware that learning how to do this thing and doing this thing is in fact part of the process of moving towards becoming a scholar. That's amazing. And, you, you know, my first um, question or well, one of the questions that I would have immediately listening to this, aside from, you know, how can all of us do this in our programs? It sounds amazing. But then if you're thinking of uh, the question of whether you have been thinking of scaling this up, because, you know, scalar relationships between the components of a structure in terms of writing and scalar relationships in terms of the components of practice is very much at the heart of the book. So, you know, my first question would be, uh, you know, have you considered scaling this up to the dissertation process as a whole? But you actually address that um, in the book in a really interesting way. And so let's maybe um, continue by talking about that a little bit. You talk in the book about um, a practice in which you're using, you're sort of advising graduate students who are writing dissertations by asking them to think about the book first And then sort of after conceiving the book project, then working backward and thinking about, okay, what form of this or what component of this book project um, does the dissertation make sense as part of? Um, And I'm not being articulate, but I know you will be. So can you talk a little bit about that, the sort of thinking about the book before writing the dissertation and how that shaped your experience of graduate mentoring as a as a writer, as well as as a, um, you know, as a scholar? Well, so again, part of this is, you know, I will say that I, I tend to be a really practical person. So part of this really is a response to the, 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 the practicalities of academic life today, which is that, you know, it's very hard to get tenure in a research one institution if you don't turn your dissertation into your first book. Mm-hmm. Right? If, you, if you put it away and you write another book, you almost certainly have to switch jobs. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of problem, right? Um, now, you know, often when people do that, their books are better. And so that's, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a terrible strategy, but I think it's, it's, it's a complicated and, and very fraught strategy. Part of the problem, if you read the other people, the other writing books that are out there and there are a number of books that talk about the transition from a dissertation to a book, right, is that what they assume is that people have written something that belongs to a genre called the dissertation that is essentially not really ready to ever become a book and will require radical transformation. Part of what I wanted to do was to say, well, what would happen if instead of having people write this genre called the dissertation, you actually had people write essentially a junior book, right? And, and what I mean by a junior book is, is, is a work that doesn't require fundamental reconstruction in order to become a book, but rather requires revision, you know, potentially extensive revision, and also extension to become a book. And so what happens if you have the student thinking and modeling their work on a book or rather on the book that the dissertation will become? Once it's complete and then you've had two to three to four years, as people do, to take that work and turn it into a publishable artifact. Um, so I just had a student defend actually uh, on Wednesday, um, which is great. And one of the things I said to her, and this happens a lot, is that the introduction to the dissertation is the first place where she – it was the first thing that she had ever written that she wrote as someone who would written a dissertation. And until she wrote the introduction, she had been someone who didn't know if she could write a dissertation. And it really shows at the level of style. And what happens is that as she's writing this introduction, she's figuring out what she did in ways that allow her to explain what she did and how how it works in, in, you know, in ways that are more sophisticated, in fact, than, than actually appear in the chapters. This is a totally normal process. In fact, it happens to me still with every book I write. And so what it means is that you then have to go back, of course, through the chapters and bring the chapters up to the level of the introduction and, in fact, teach the chapters what the introduction knows. You know, this is ironic because, of course, the, introdu- the, the chapters are what the introduction knows, but the, the chapters themselves don't know what the introduction knows. Mm-hmm. 
right? And it's precisely through what the introduction learns when it when it's being written last. As, and I, I should say, I teach all my students to write the introduction last. That then this process reveals the book as a kind of total right. thing. At that point, we spent most of the defense, and it was clear that she was going to pass. We spent most of the defense talking about the different books this book could become, right? That is, or the different books this dissertation could become. We had begun, I will say, way back when, that is three years ago when she started writing, talking about what kind of book might this be. And of course, you know, when you go on the market as a graduate student, you always have to talk about how you're going to turn your dissertation into a book, and it's a very common job question. So this is a useful thing for people to be thinking about. But Part of also what I, what I was trying to manage when we had those conversations was that, that I, I wanted students to be focused on a manageable version of the project rather than the most ambitious version of the project without feeling like they had to give up on ambition. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of ambitious version of the book that my student Grace wrote that exists and that she's had in mind and that she never has felt like she had to give that up to do something doable because what she's done is she's written a dissertation that's essentially three-fifths maybe, maybe three-quarters of that book. Mm-hmm. And and so in doing that, first of all, it gives the work of the dissertation a kind of scope and scale that I think is exciting for students. And at the same time, it allows them to graduate in a reasonable amount of time, right, and, and to focus on manageable chapters. And I think part of it is also, you know, to be open, even, even at the beginning when Grace and I were talking about this, we had kind of two or three versions of the book this book might be um, in mind. And as it's grown and as she's written the chapters and it's become clear what it is, you know, some of those versions have changed. A couple of them have dropped out and a couple, a couple of new ones have emerged. And so part of that's part of the intellectual decision she's going to have to make. But I feel like the basic principle, right, which is that the dissertation is, is a junior version of an ambitious book that can be the first book, feels like a really good pedagogical principle. I feel like it emotionally works really well with my students. In any case, and I also think like that, I think that it puts the relationship between the dissertation and the first book into a kind of uh, really useful perspective in which the first book is seen and the years working on the first book are not seen as, I think, as they often are by junior faculty and certainly more by by me and some of my colleagues, as kind of this tedious taking of something you thought you were done with and turning it into the thing that would satisfy other people even though you weren't that interested in the project anymore. Right. And, ter- and turns those years into years that you spend thinking of yourself as continuous, continuing to develop as a writer and thinker through your work on this project, right? Which then becomes not a project that you begin with the idea of finishing it two years, but rather a, a project that you begin with the idea of reaching an important way station called the dissertation defense in two to three years, and then finishing it in two to three more years after that. And that the product, the project of developing intellectually and developing, you know, as a scholar and developing the power and force of the work then continues over those six years rather than simply being something where you're done with something. And why are these people all making you do more on it, even though it's actually done? Right. I mean, I love this for several reasons. And I know, you know, you know, I'm going to love this. Right. But I love this part of it um, in part because it helps speak back to, I think, the problem that a lot of us have when we're not thinking about and haven't been trained or haven't, you know, we realize we can think about the relationship between the dissertation and the book in this way, which is that a lot of us in, uh, you know, being at the point where we're transitioning from dissertation to book, get to the point where we're just so sick of the project that a lot of yeah. people, you know, just hate their first books. Like don't want to talk yeah. about them. Don't because you're so sick of it. And there's so much pressure and so much um, resentment you know, involved mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. Or um, people who are trained to think about the dissertation and the book as being two completely different genres, you know, two completely different things without having a sense of how to connect the two that's built into the process of conceiving and writing the dissertation itself. Right. And so, like, if you think, I mean, imagine, there, I, I could understand, first of all, well, let me say two things. So one is the resentment you're describing is really real and it's very painful and, and it, it's depressing that we live in a profession in which that happens often enough that I, I assume everyone listening to this podcast will know someone, maybe they themselves will have gone yeah. through that kind of process. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's bad, right? Minimally, as people who care for each other, we should look at that and say, no, you know, that's not a, a good outcome for the kind of profession this is. And, 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 and so what would happen? How could we make that different? The second thing is if you think of a dissertation as really genuinely different from a book and, and there are faculty who believe that, and there are programs who train that way, you at least need a theory of what the hell you're doing, making someone write one. Right. 
right? I mean, so if, if you say, okay, your dissertation is not a book and, and it's this different thing and you have to do it this way and, and, then, and then you're going to write a book. You know, again, pedagogically, what's the justification? What's the rationale? And, and not just what's the justification rationale, but obviously choosing to do that means not choosing to do it in the way that I'm describing. So are you sure that your way is that much better? than this other way that, that Hayo is describing in his book. I'm not necessarily positive that my way is better, but I, I have some intuitions that it might be. And I certainly think that minimally I've actually articulated a kind of ethos that seems rational that I understand and that so far on the basis of my relationships with my students seems to be working. Um, so, you know, we'll see in the long run. But I, I would say minimally then, again, if you have a practice, you should know why you have that practice and you should have considered that practice in relation to the alternatives that are out there. Mm-hmm. So the book also includes, so uh, uh, along with all of these really wonderful discussions of the kinds of transformations that we can try to implement in terms of how we teach our students um, and how students you know, take agency in learning themselves how to write. You also have a lot of advice for those of us who um, are done with graduate school, um, who are grappling with having writing lives and integrating it into our practice in the midst of all of the thousands of other things that are competing for our time. And so there's a whole section on strategies for writing that I won't go into um, in any detail, but I just want to mark this so that listeners know that it's there, which includes things like, you know, write daily, um, includes strategies for keeping on writing when we're stuck. Also includes, I think, some really helpful um, and very uh, sympathetic and humane advice about av- avoiding virtuous procrastination, like all the things that are competing for our time that are really, that feel worth doing, um, but that get in the way of, you know, making time for writing. Um, <coughs> so that's a really useful, I think, part of the book. Now there's a whole part of the book um, devoted to strategy as well, in which you're talking about, as you put it, large-scale structures that govern the production of scholarship in literary and cultural studies, and I think also um, beyond literary and cultural studies. I think a lot of this, uh, most of it applies absolutely well to history um, as well, which is my field. Now, we can't talk about all of the wonderful things that are happening here, but one of the premises um, that you're introducing in this section really governs what's happening in the rest of the book. And I want to at least have a little bit of time to talk about it. And that is this idea of the uneven you. Mm -hmm. So um, can you introduce for us this idea of the uneven you? What's going on here? Um, Why is it important? And how, in your opinion, does integrating this into how we think about the structure of our writing potentially, like what what potentially can this do to transform the way we write practically? Well, I'll say, I'll say a couple different things about it. First of all, you know, uh, some hesitation about the name, the uneven you, but I had to call it something. So there it is. I mean, the you is, is the reason it's uneven is because the sort of the left arm of the you or the left riser of the you is lower than the right risers. For those of you, that's impossible to describe in a podcast, but there are pictures in the book. So it's clear. Um, What that describes is what I think is, um, both a very good structure, but also a very common structure in academic writing. And so, you know, the book is this weird sort of head, goes back and forth between what I think was kind of prescriptive and descriptive advice. And so there are parts of the book that really are saying, look, this is what people do. And then sometimes I say, and by the way, I think of all the things that people do, this one seems like the most effective for me, and here's why, right? And and so the you is really part of that, which is to say the you is, is a way of describing something that I think genuinely happens in academic writing, um, and that helps make academic writing powerful. But it's also a way of prescribing a kind of pattern or structure that can usefully help writers build paragraphs and build the the larger structures that paragraphs belong to. So sections, chapters, uh, and even sort of the, the rhythm of an entire book. The basic thing that the uneven you and my advocacy for the uneven you resists is a kind of highly instrumentalized form of writing advice that involves strong, explicit signposting in the form of, in this paper, I will make three claims. One, two, and three, followed by then section one, the first claim, section two, the second claim, section three, the third claim, and then a conclusion that says, in this paper, I have made three claims. These were the claims in case you didn't see them the first time. Ta-da. 
right? And and there's a lot of writing advice, both at the undergraduate and even the graduate level, that essentially is, is arguing for that kind of structure. And I guess what I'll say is I just find that writing boring. I mean, that is what we know in general about writing and and about the way that writing creates emotion is that there's a lot of emotion generated by uh, the forces of anticipation and the forces of surprise and the forces of revelation. And this kind of highly explicit signposted work takes advantage of none of those forms. So imagine if you say instead, you know, in this, in this, uh, essay, I'll be dealing with these three problems. By the end of it, I'll reveal that, in fact, these three problems are all the same problem. At that point, I'm willing to keep reading because you haven't told me exactly how, but you've set up a kind of mystery, right? It's like, it's like by saying, by the end of the evening, one of us will be dead. Like, I'm sticking around. I'll, well, I guess maybe not, but I mean, I, you know, theoretically, at least I'm sticking around to find out what's going to happen if I'm reading a novel, right? That is, that is you can, so, and so you can create by actually being you know, smart, slightly obscure, right, about the way that you're presenting work at the beginning, you can actually create a kind of rising energy at the end that gives someone a payoff for reading all the way to the end, right? There's often these moments where people say things in their book, and and I'm willing to say, look, whatever, this book is published by University Press, I trust you, you have a PhD, you're at a university, whatever, like, if you want to just say these things are true, and, and then don't make me wade through all of the evidence, like, I'll just stipulate to it at, at some point, right? Whereas if you're going to make me walk through all the evidence, I, I've got to be learning something. I've got to be engaged in some way. I've got to, I mean, there's got to be something happening to me on, on page, you know, 180 that required, that benefits from, not necessarily required, but that benefits from the fact that I've read pages 100 to 179 and that will be in turn transformed by pages 181 through 200. Mm-hmm. Right. That that is to say, the, the the work of the work of the book, the work of a single paragraph, has to be work in which there is a gain from engaging in all the parts of it. Because otherwise, you could just take the first sentences of the paragraphs and stick them all in a book and be like, read this, and then if you want the evidence, I'll put it all on the web, and you can read the rest of the paragraphs. But really, you don't need to read it to have any of the pleasure. Yeah. If we believe right that these words are important and that they're making a difference to the reader, then we have to write them in such a way that the reader is rewarded for the energy he or she spends on working through that project. And so what the uneven you is about is about creating structures over and over that end at a place that's more interesting, more theoretically interesting, more more uh, sort of historically interesting, whatever it is, more potentially abstract, uh, more compelling, larger in some sense, more summative, more uh, more oriented towards connection than the places they begin. So that you begin on this lower sort of leg on the left side of the U and you work through and you get down at the bottom of the U and that's where evidence is happening. And then as you begin to rise up the other side of the U, you're analyzing your evidence, you're putting it together in relationships. And (laughs) as you reach the very top of the U, then what's happened is that place where you began with on the other side finds itself transformed and shaped. And there's growth and change that happens at the top of that right side of the U. That's essentially the structure that I, I, I believe makes much scholarly writing powerful and good. It doesn't mean that all scholarly writing always has to do this. I don't, I don't personally write uneven new paragraphs or even sections all the time, but it, it is always in mind for me. And what I do in the book is I mainly, I spend a lot of time, first of all, showing you this pattern at work and the work of other people who aren't me and who've never heard of the uneven new. And then kind of breaking it down and showing you how to do that yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and the point here is A, that, that this is powerful for the reasons I've just described, but B, that this is in fact the source of the power of much of the work you're already reading, right? And so that's where, again, that kind of prescriptive, descriptive sort of switch is happening and you're moving back and forth between saying not only A, is this useful and creates power and force and engagement and energy on the part of the reader, but also B, it's been doing that the whole time, but no one had described it in the way that I'm describing it. And by describing it, I make it visible as a kind of basic rhetorical slash epistemological structure of the way that academics write and communicate with them. So Eric, have you tried using um, any subset of these methodologies to teach undergraduates? Yeah, I actually developed many of them teaching undergraduates. Um, Mm -hmm. You you know, I, I, that a little bit sort of, sure. I mean, I, you know, I I think typically for, for a lot of people, I got my PhD in English. So I started, I started in grad school as a teacher teaching composition. And one of the things that really bothered me about the kind of composition pedagogy that was dominant at the time was that it was very 
focused on um, on writing as a kind of uh, expression and and as self-expression. And what it concealed for me was the fact that there were actually pretty clear patterns and structures and rules that you could teach people. And I felt at the time like that was, you know, it was this weird way in which a kind of certain version of a, a kind of liberal writing pedagogy was actually bad for students because it made writing out to be a kind of matter of feel rather than what it often was for me, which was a matter of understanding patterns and structures and how they put, how were they, how they were put together to create force. That is, it made writing a little bit too magic. Um, now, I think writing is magic and my writing can be beautiful and create incredibly powerful effects. But I actually think most of the time, like magic itself, you can actually describe how that, how it was done. And I don't think that describing how it, how it was done and then teaching someone to use that, those same patterns, um, diminishes the power or the magic, uh, that can be present in writing. So, you know, when I started teaching undergraduates how to write, I made up uh, you know, basically this book is a compilation of things that I made up over the years to teach people how to do, how to write papers, essentially how to write academic papers. And, and, you know, some of the sentences in here are taken from handouts that I made for students in 1999 and 2000, 2001, when I was first teaching writing, uh, at, you know, in call at the college level as a, as, as a lecturer and then as an assistant professor. Um, what happened to me at the University of Arizona, which was the first time I was really teaching graduate students, was that I realized that, in fact, my graduate students needed the same instruction mm -hmm. and, in fact, maybe needed it more because the people who tend to go to graduate school tend to have skipped all of the writing instruction they would have gotten in college because they place out of, you know, they get a five on the AP exam or whatever it is. And so they end up placing out of writing um, sort of stuff. And they're often very good writers. They've had a very good high school education. So they're pretty good writers. So they don't get any writing instruction from their professors because they're always writing eight papers. And so, all, you know, but also the other thing is they've gotten into grad school because they're good at writing end of term papers in their undergraduate classes. And all of a sudden in grad school, they have to write articles and dissertations and they've never written those before. And so this was this other sort of recognition, which was kind of epiphanic for me uh, of understanding that, in fact, this is a profession that is largely um, in which success uh, at the research level, in any case, is largely oriented around writing. And that thinking of ourselves as writers and thinking of them as writers and then treating them as potential writers and as people who are, who are engaged in, you know, in the process of learning how to write in very specific genres uh, was going to be really helpful to them and, and, and was going to be kind of ethically, uh, pedagogically ethical or ethically pedagogical. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of where it comes from. But I, I, I think that, you know, for, for me, um, academic scholarship in the humanities is an incredibly successful genre in, of and it's an incredibly successful 20th century genre let's say i'm obviously historical writing has a much longer history and so does writing and literary criticism in general but if you think about the post 45 shifts in the way that the writing of history the writing of philosophy or the writing of literary criticism or cultural cultural criticism have worked it's it's been a you know there's been a series of really dramatic changes and um it makes sense for me to think of myself as belonging to a tribe that is uh, that is part of the production of a genre that's an incredibly successful genre. That is, it accounts for some significant percentage of the total words outputted by you know by by the human race uh, in the last century, and it has a history. It, it like like the history of literature, right? Um, and it has it it, it it can be described and, and and studied, and it has practitioners, and those practitioners engage within it with it uh, as a craft. And, and, and all of that makes sense and seems to me, again, you know, for, for a literature scholar, like something that should be completely and totally obvious. And I think technically maybe is, but it's not obvious if you look at the way that we put that into practice. That is, that is to say, if you look at our graduate programs, you would say these graduate programs are, are run by people who, uh, frankly, don't understand um, that they're part of a profession that writes. Right. And so speaking of belonging and speaking of craft, I don't want to finish without talking about the last part of the book. So after um, these two really, really useful parts of the book that are devoted to strategy, including um, this uneven you and many other elements of strategic writing um, that go along with it, and then another section of the book <coughs> that gives um, some really, really useful, very practical advice on tactics for how to manifest um, different, uh, the kind of most effective versions of different elements of, you know, things like, 
um, citational practice, the importance of repeating um, your major ideas, um, etc. There is a really interesting a final fourth section of the book on becoming, on the importance of sort of becoming a writer, and then the, the importance of writing as a kind of lived practice and the transformations that can accrue therefrom. For you, what are the most crucial aspects of that fourth section and of this sort of larger um, discussion that you're giving us here on becoming a writer? Well, I would say two things. I mean, the, one of the big things that I emphasize in the work about writing is that, in fact, you learn while you're writing. Mm-hmm. That is, writing is a, is, a, is a thought practice. And that if someone says to you, I had a set of ideas, and then I wrote them down, and over the course of the year that I spent writing, I didn't learn anything new about those ideas. I would be very, very suspicious of the quality of those ideas and, and of the interest of the writing that produced them or that seemed to produce them. My feeling is that certainly for me, but also for lots of other people I know, that writing is actually as you're writing your thinking, that is the relationship between the writing and the ideas that the writing produces is highly um, variable, but integrated. Uh, that is, there are days where you write and you don't have any new ideas. There are days when you write and it's full of ideas and you have too many ideas. And you have to get rid of some of your ideas, right? But the, 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 even, you know, and, and anyone who listens to this can try this. If you're writing something right now, start a new file, print out what you have and retype it mm-hmm. and see what happens to you in the act of retyping those 20 pages, right? And, and watch how the act of retyping actively changes and reshapes what you actually already have written down. I don't mean as a revision. I mean just retype the whole thing into a word processor and see what happens as you feel the desire to change it as you're writing and see also how the act of retyping changes what you're thinking. So at the end of so, – so that's the fundamental ethos of writing, which is I think that once we think of writing that way, the entire relation between writing and revision disappears. It's all just writing, right? There's no such thing as revision. In a strong sense, they're simply writing. And when one is revising, one is writing. And when one is writing, one is writing. And, and that those are, those are all part of a larger practice that it makes sense to conceive of them as a larger practice rather than as two steps. This means that the work, as I say in the, in the book, the work becomes itself. That you cannot know and you should not want to know exactly what you're going to say over the course of an article or a book when you start the article or a book. Because to know that would, is to block yourself from the kinds of excitement and change and innovation that can happen in active writing. And so you have to actually leave some room, even though it's a little bit scary, to let the work become what it is. Again, think back to the dissertation that I was describing for my graduate student, Grace. Um, she found out in some ways what the work was about when she wrote the introduction. There was there were things that she thought the work was about. She was kind of, but she was always also throwing herself forward into a void, and it was the act of writing the intro- introduction and 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 of thinking in that way that allowed her to grasp the totality of the work in a brand new way. That was really really vital for her, and I think if she'd written the introduction ahead of time, she would have always been thinking, well, this doesn't fit the introduction. I have to make this fit the introduction. I didn't say I was going to do this in the introduction. Whereas actually by being open to the directions that the work work took her, she was able to write a much better and more powerful work. So when you start writing a book, you know, and this is true for everyone, the book you're going to write could be, could turn out a hundred different ways. And how it's going to turn out is going to depend on what you read, on who you talk to, on the talks you give, on the conferences you go to, the, the, the people who are in your graduate cohort, if you're a graduate student. The point is to actually understand that that's a kind of form of becoming that you need to integrate into your writing practice and that by allowing the work to become itself, you will stay open to the possibility of change. You will stay open to that right kind of rising arm of the NEU, which allows you to look back on what you've done with a new perspective and a new understanding. That's the first kind of becoming. The second kind of becoming that I'm interested in encouraging people to think about is the way what, what it would mean to become a writer, to ask them to ask yourself, what would it take for me to become a writer? To recognize that, of course, one is never fully a writer, but one always is in the process of becoming a writer and, and changing. It would be a very weird person who said, I'm done learning about writing. <laughs> right. Everything I'm going to do from the rest of my career for the next 30 years is going to be written in exact the same way I finally at the age of 35 or 45 mastered writing and therefore no changes need to happen. Right. So that writing is, 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 is like that, a kind of continuous process. But what would it mean to commit to becoming a writer? Right. What would it mean to be, to be involved in thinking in a continuous way about what it means to write and, and, and about what it would be, you know, I, I think I say, I think I say this in the book, if you were a writer, what would you do? What would you do with yourself? If you think of yourself as a writer, what does that, how does that change what you need to be doing in order to be responsible to that fact. Mm 
And there I just think, you know, one of the simplest things is to think about writing in a different way, to teach writing in a different way, to engage in writing as a practice and a craft, to try new ways of writing, to try to understand um, what how writing works. Um, and that's part of becoming, I think, again, a profession in which that were happening would be a very exciting profession, a profession with probably more diverse and kind of experimental forms, which would be great. Uh, a profession where people talked about writing more openly, which would be really exciting. Uh, and a profession where writing was livelier and, 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 uh, more free. And that seems to be good. Um, and then the third kind of becoming it, it, that I talk about is, is, is I've just touched on, which is the kind of becoming that would happen in the profession. Uh, if this were to happen, but that also might happen in the smaller communities in which we all take part, which is to say the communities of one's friends um, and and uh, of one's colleagues, in which there's also, I think, the possibility of a kind of becoming through writing that involves what happens when you exchange and share and grow with people and what happens when you um, when you join with those in a kind of mutual process of, of uh, growth and transformation as, um, you know, not as a professor devoted to the reproduction of the neoliberal state, but, but, but as a writer and as, as someone who's taking his or her place in a long line of writers uh, with whom, you know, one is always interacting and, 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 and whose company, you know, is, is worth joining. Well, Eric, thank you so much. There's a million other things that we could talk about and that I'd love to keep you for another hour or two to talk about, but um, we are at the end of the hour. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? No, I mean, no, this was great, Carla. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, I, I will say that, that the, I think this conversation makes the book sound like it's about bigger ideas than, than it is in, in the practice of actually reading it. There's a lot of very, very practical, uh, small-minded, uh, and I think hopefully helpful advice in the book. Um, and so, you know, if I've seized this opportunity to, to talk about why I wrote the book more than about what's actually happening in the book itself, um, you know, I, I apologize a little bit, but I, I think that, that, you know, for me, those things are, 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 both there in the book, but also some sense of the buried kind of ethical core of, of, of why I wrote it in the first place. That's right. And, you know, I think it's, um, this is, this conversation cannot be a substitute for the book itself. Right. And so I think, um, I encourage readers to, or listeners to get a copy because there is a ton of practical advice. And in fact, I, and I think, um, hopefully some of my colleagues will be using it to try to integrate some new stuff into the way we're teaching writing. So thank you so much, Eric. You are welcome. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to the New Books Network seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.